Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. You're welcome to WIT. In case you don't know me, my name is Dr. Una Keeley. This morning's lecture is on academic writing. I'm recording the lecture this morning, so if you want to um, access it again, you can. I'm going to have some ambient music in the, in the background, um, just to help us all stay zen. Um, in terms of preparing for our assignment. If it's distracting, I can turn it off. Okay, my first comment is this comment on the PowerPoint presentation from Cisner. Um, writing is hard work. A clear sentence is no accident. Very few sentences come out the right the first time, or even the third time. If you find that writing is hard, it's because it is hard. And that's not to scare you away from academic writing when I know you're all frantically trying to get the assignment one right. It's just to remind you that academic writing is a skill. And teaching academic writing is kind of impossible because it's like attempting to teach swimming out of a book. I wouldn't attempt to teach any of you swimming out of a book, nor would any of you learn, attempt to learn swimming out of a book. You would imagine that you would have to get in the water. And really, that's the, the same thing applies for academic writing. The best way to learn academic writing is to engage in the practice of academic writing. And the great thing is that we're here in first year. You don't have to get everything right immediately. You can work up to it. So the lecture today is really a lecture that contains a few tips on things that you might employ in order to make a start. And then when you've got a draft assignment, use almost as a check a checking device against the assignment that you have written, okay? If you're terrified of the blank page and you can't make a start, there's all kinds of different ways to start writing if that's a, a worry. If you look up free writing, um, if you Google that as a concept, you can start an assignment simply by free writing. Writing what you know, beginning to write an argument. And that's a really important start to take away the terror of the blank page. But it isn't quite academic writing. So if the blank page is your problem, you can adopt a practice of free writing. But once you've done that, it's the academic writing discipline that needs to come into play. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about that this morning. I'm going to cover purpose and characteristics of academic writing. We're going to look at structure. I'll look a little bit at sentences, but mostly I'll look at paragraphs. We'll look at how to use prime and incorporate primary and secondary material. And I'll look a little bit at referencing in-text and end-of-text referencing. I know you've been covering these things elsewhere. Um, so it's just another take on that. So, to start academic writing and the purpose of academic writing, you should have academic writing is characterized by a very clear 
purpose. And we'll talk about the purpose in relation to the concept of a thesis statement a little bit later on in the lecture. Good academic writing must be analytical, it must be critical, and it must present a well-crafted, persuasive and informed argument. So the key words there are those concepts around analysis, criticality and informed, okay? And often it's useful to just double check that you really understand what those words mean. What is it to be critical? What is it to be analytical? And we can talk a little bit more about that. But I think for me, the ideas of analysis and criticality and being well um, informed are inseparable. Because we've been talking a little bit about reflective, critical reflective writing in theatre studies. And in order to be critically reflective, one must be able to make reference to the theoretical literature in the field. And in our case, in terms of English literature, that means being well informed about not only your primary text, the text that you're studying, but also your secondary material. So that's the critical analysis material that discusses the primary text. So if you like this idea of being analytical and critical is absolutely inseparable from the, the research that you undertake in order to meet the assignment. Does that sound like it's making sense? Yeah? Okay. So we move back to Aristotle. Um, in rhetoric, Aristotle defined rhetorical discourse as the art of discovering all the available means of persuasion in any given case. So this leads us on to imagine that rhetorical writing, and academic writing is a discipline of, uses the disciplines of rhetoric, involves persuasion to a point of argument. And Aristotle informs us to use he advises us to use all the available means of persuasion. Now, there are three essential means of persuasion in the art of rhetoric. And in fact, academic writing only uses two of those. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Just before we do, we'll mention that rhetoric employs devices to create intellectual and or emotional effects on an audience so as to persuade them to exceed a point of view. And this is where academic writing does not use all the devices of rhetoric because academic writing is not concerned with creating an emotional effect. And that is the difference. The art of rhetoric has three aspects. Logos, which is the word, ethos, which is the character, and pathos, which is the experience. And we use logos and ethos in academic writing. And I'll explain that a little bit further, just so that you're clear. So logos is appeal based on logic or reason. 
The message is clear, logical and consistent. And essentially, this is what, this is very much a characteristic of academic writing. Ethos is appeal based on the character, the credibility, the authority of the speaker. And an ethos driven argument relies on the reputation of the author or authors. So you can see here that this, these twin characteristics of logic, reason, objectivity, married with research, secondary reading, these are the two main characteristics of academic writing. The third um, aspect of rhetoric is pathos, appeal based on emotion, playing on sympathy, fears, imagination, desires and sensory experience. But as I said, academic writing does not employ pathos as a feature of style or content. So you need to be just just remain aware that there is this characteristic of objectivity around the discipline of academic writing. So to just talk a little bit about the differences between academic writing and a more personal style of writing, which you may have been encouraged to engage in in various um, exercises within second level. And sometimes this is the confusion in first years. How do I make that shift from a more personal perspective to a more academic perspective? So it's, it's useful sometimes to understand something by contrast. So I'll give you this, these characteristics of the personal perspective before moving to the academic perspective. The personal perspective recounts or tells a story Generally, there aren't technical, discipline-specific vocabulary that isn't involved. Um, the I, this, the person, the narrator, is at the centre. Information comes from the writer's experience, as opposed from cri critically informed research. So, the personal is based on, or often is based on, an experiential account Personal feelings and views are important and often the writing is, serves as a, as a means to think things through. Whereas from the academic perspective, academic writing comments, it evaluates, it ana analyzes, it uses subject specific vocabulary. So all of those literary terms that I keep harping on about every week. Um, information comes from a range of sources and refers to what others have found. So we move from the I being at the centre to uh, a greater awareness of a multiplicity of perspectives. The writing is based upon evidence and argument and the scholarly conventions of referencing and citing to acknowledge others' work are incorporated. Essentially, academic writing communicates finished thoughts. And sometimes when we write, we have to write in order to work it out. But the academic writing then moves that perspective so that we're writing a completed set of interconnected thoughts. 
So essentially, academic writing is a, a very formal, organized, structured, thoughtful discipline. The academic context requires you to remain formal, avoiding the contractions of everyday speech, isn't, shouldn't, wouldn't, couldn't, those are contractions. It asks you and requires you to be precise, to write exactly what you mean. And I know from my own writing that I often write things that seem to me to be exactly what I mean, but it's when I go back and redraft that paragraph that I realize that I'm, my writing is obscure, I need to clarify, I need to be more precise in my word choice. Now that comes with drafting and drafting and drafting. Unless you're a very experienced academic writer, precision in language is difficult. As is clarity, academic writing is characterized by clarity. So in your own writing, you need to ensure that your sentences and your paragraphs make sense. Yes, that they connect to one another, but actually that you can deconstruct them sentence by sentence and that they're very clear and they make sense. You need to be concise and avoid repetition and you need to be focused only to include relevant material. And it's so easy to write those up on a board as bullet points and it's so challenging to implement them in practice. It only comes with experience and many, re many iterations of the assignment. So academic writing is improved as much by good time management as it is by writing. Because if you are able to plan your work so that you can write and finish an assignment days or perhaps a week before it is due, well then you will be able to go back with a clear head and do several more drafts of that assignment. Finishing it on the day that it has to be in and not having time to print it, etc, etc. It seems like it's nothing to do with academic writing, but it is. Because proofreading and editing is when the work of academic writing begins, not ends, actually. So, I have two images here, one of the image of a field of poppies and the image of or some tulips and some tulips in a vase organized. So if you, if you think of the, the field of poppies with all, or of tulips with all the tulips there, that's all the information that could go into your essay, right? But what your job is as a writer is to select from that abundance of information only those that are most appropriate to your thesis statement, to the argument that you're trying to create. And so you select from that abundance of material a small amount of material which you then arrange and present so that it becomes a coherent image. Hence the way the tulips are selected and put in the vase and presented. There, all of those tulips in are your paragraphs and they create the argument. So 
I suppose we're very aware that in first year you're there in the field not knowing which ones to select and what to put in and what to leave out and where even to start. So the, the starting point to help you is to understand the idea of a thesis statement and to understand the idea of structure. So your job is to work towards that clear and definite structure and we'll look at that next. Your introduction should say everything you need to say in a nutshell. It's, you can start with writing an introduction but what I always do is I write some kind of an introduction then I write my article and then I come back and I try to write my introduction again and then when I've written my introduction I then try and write my conclusion again and then I'll write all the different paragraphs that I've just written again um, so that's what I mean academic writing is not just about writing it's about editing editing is a hugely important part of academic writing so when you've written and you've decided you need to come back to your introduction again what are your main points what is it that you want to say how is each thought relevant to each other? What is the overall point? And that's your introduction. Biographical detail, irrelevant. I've had lovely pages of biographical detail, which I just put a pen line through. It's, it's absolutely irrelevant to me. I'm not interested, nor is it, are any of my colleagues, in the biographical detail of the author. If you want to know that, and you will all read that in your search, please do not include it. Because your introduction should introduce your argument. That's the point of your introduction. So, we need to understand how to do that, and the way we do that is to create a thesis sentence. The thesis sentence is created in response to the assignment question and determines the direction of your argument. So what does a thesis statement look like? One such example might be this one. This essay critiques the ways in which talk real fine just like a lady, exposes the ways in which formal lexical systems unwittingly compromise women's expressive potential. That's a thesis statement. What you're trying to do is to say, you're, you're actually, you're showing that you know what your job is because you're using the word critique. You're focusing on this text here, talk real fine just like a lady. You're, you've got a job to do and you understand what that job is. Your job is to expose the ways in which formal lexical systems unwittingly compromise women's expressive potential. So that's the job that you're going to do. And in that simple statement, in that sentence, you've determined, you've, you've told your reader, this is the job that I'm going to do in this essay. Now you may add some other sentences to this in terms of, and this is how I'm going to do it, in the, for, in the 
first part of the essay, I will look at these ideas. Bang, 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 you might have two or three. In the next part of the essay, I will look at these ideas. Bang, bang, bang. You might, again, you might have one or two or three. Um, and that determines then the structure of your essay. So actually, the structure is something that you are in control of. Okay? Yeah? You say, this is what I'm going to do, and this is how I'm going to do it. And this is the material I might use. So you might make reference to your primary material, your secondary material. You're very clear to your reader that this is the job and this is what you're going to do. And you're not going to work up to that after a page and a half of biographical detail of the author because as you know, the, the biographical detail of the author or the context of the time maybe has very little to do with the job that you've set yourself. Right? So that thesis sentence is crucial in order for you to set the agenda and the structure for your own essay. So it's really helpful to you. So if you can get that, if you can get on top of that at the start of the essay, well then you take control of what's happening. Okay? So it's useful then to regularly, throughout your research and preparation and drafting of the assignment, to check that you're, you've remained in line with your thesis statement. And the first thing you need to do is just be, have, make sure that you have confidence in your own thesis. So you can ask yourself, does my thesis sentence attempt to answer or explore a challenging intellectual question? You know, what is the quality of the question that, and the task that you have set yourself? Because you need to recognise that we have moved on from second level. We're, we have a specific job as level 8, degree level students. So you need to just become aware of that and make sure that you're embracing the topic at the appropriate level. And how do you do that? You look at the kinds of questions that we're discussing in tutorials and in lectures. You understand clearly what third level academic inquiry is. What is it to study at level eight? And you can be guided by the content of the lectures and the tutorials on that one. Is your thesis sentence vague? Is it general? Is it specific enough? And my advice to students always is narrow the focus. Narrow the focus. Be really, really specific. Don't attempt a, to answer a general question. Instead of looking at describing the Irish literary revival, for example, you're much better to look at the character of Mrs. Mooney in James Joyce's Dubliners and interrogate how that character expresses the complexities of the literary revival. Do you see what I mean? And I would go to, I mean, I have given papers at conferences where I have 
drawn my focus in even tighter. So I have presented and written papers on three stage directions in a particular play and all that they reveal. So it's that aim to be specific, to go, if you're, if somebody says, I'm going to go traveling in Europe, they have to start in a particular place. They have to go hone in right into the map, like Google Earth, and zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, until you find that place, that, it, that place that exists. And that's where you need to go in terms of your analysis. Does that make sense? So, paragraph structures. Paragraphs are your friend. <laughs> they will help you navigate the way through the assignment. A paragraph is a single unit of thought, critical to developing a coherent argument. A paragraph should be a between 10 and 20 lines or sentences. Sentences are probably too long, about 15, 12, 15 sentences. And look, they can, they can vary too, but that's a useful guide. Because shorter paragraphs make you, the writer, look uncertain or ill-informed, under-informed. Long paragraphs indicate that the writer is unsure of their point and how to substantiate it. Essentially, the rule with paragraphs is one point per paragraph. The internal structure of a paragraph needs to be tight. The transition from paragraph to paragraph needs to be clear so that the argument can be easily followed. So imagine I've got four ideas and I want to work them out in my assignment. Well then essentially I have four main paragraphs. Now there might be an, an opportunity for me to subdivide one point into two. If that's, if that's the case, well then you need to create two paragraphs. Okay, so one point per paragraph. And every paragraph exists to support your thesis. If a paragraph is irrelevant to the thesis, then either get rid of the paragraph or rewrite the thesis sentence. Okay? So if you have written your thesis sentence, you should be able then, as you, either as you start, or sometimes we can get distracted, that's why you need a, a day or two to leave it lie, to go away from it and come back and go, actually, yeah, I thought I was onto a great thing there, but I got distracted. And that paragraph, which was really interesting to me two days ago and seemed really appropriate, doesn't address my thesis. So I have to scrap it. And being brave enough to do that, if you find any of you that you've gone back and you've done that in an essay, I guarantee you, you're raising the game. You're raising your mark because that's a skill. So if you don't find that you're editing out irrelevant material, it will probably mean you're not working hard enough. It's like when you're in the gym, if you're not sweating, you're not working hard enough. 
in academic writing, if you're not cutting out irrelevant material after a couple of days, you're not working hard enough. And it's having the courage to go, oh, I spent ages on that, but it's, it's, it's not relevant. And scrapping it, and that's editing. And editing is integral to academic writing, okay? So just have the courage to draw the line through the, the material. Because if you don't, we will, and you've wasted your time there. So to check the cohesion of your paragraphs, here's a little checklist. Uh, read par each paragraph out loud. It's very, very good for proofreading to read out loud. Um, does it contribute to the thesis statement? Does it? This is your checklist. Does it progress from the paragraph that went before? Does it establish one main point and does it lead on to the next paragraph? So, as I said, this presentation is going to be on Moodle. Just download the presentation, print it off, use it as a checklist for your assignment. Because this, this presentation is based on years of experience of receiving student work at third level. Okay? So these are a list of all the things that people generally do. So you can take the hamburger approach to the paragraph, which is you have your topic sentence, your next layer is your supporting sentence one, followed by supporting sentence two, supporting sentence three, and conclusion sentence. So if you like, you can take the hamburger approach to the paragraph. You can also take the peel approach to the paragraph, which is make your point, provide your evidence, provide explanation, and link to the next sentence. Now, I would say these are rather simplistic structuring devices for a paragraph, but if you're anxious and challenged and nervous about the assignment and you want, use them rather than not using anything. Use something and work up to being able to create a more complex paragraph. I would say that a more complex paragraph that will serve you well at third level introduces the concept of argument and counter-argument. So you can introduce the point of the paragraph, support any statement that you make with argument and evidence. I would say you're looking at your primary text in this instance. You're going to make a statement about the primary text then support that statement with evidence from the primary text, with the quotation. Then you can introduce, and what you might do then is your, support that illustration from the, count, from the primary text with some reading that supports that point, but then you introduce an alternative perspective or point of view. So you ask yourself the question, what if that, how can I take issue with that point? How can I contradict that? How can I complicate that point? And this is when you know you're really cooking with gas in terms of your argument because you're able to show your reader that you're moving on to embrace the complexity of argument 
You're not just simply presenting one point of view. You're holding your point in discussion inside your paragraph. So you can introduce a counter-argument, support your counter-argument, so provide evidence to support the alternative point of view. And then before you close your paragraph, you reconcile your reader to your position by supporting your argument, the argument that you've presented first in the paragraph, with further evidence which refutes or weakens the counter-argument. Yeah. And then you know you're really engaging with the material and the research in this critical, analytical way. Okay? So that, that first um, sentence on the PowerPoint slide, which talked about criticality and being analytical, that's what that is. That's how to do that. Okay? So, finally, you can conclude and link to the next paragraph. So bring your reader from the end of that paragraph into the next. And sometimes in my writing, I'm not always sure what the next point is, or I move my paragraphs around. So often what I do is I, I don't do that linking sentence until the very end. I kind of organize my essay and then I go, okay, that's the next, that's the next point I'm going to make. So I'm going to lead into that. And sometimes all I do is I take the last, I take the first sentence from my new paragraph and move it up into my last paragraph so that it provides a bridge into the next paragraph. So there's little tricks that you might find suit you, but that's one way of doing it. Okay, secondary sources. This is the big one for everybody in terms of um, criticality. You can't write an academic essay at third level without making close and careful reference to both your primary and secondary sources. Failure to do so will result in a failing mark for the essay, which is what nobody wants. Okay? So, you're all here, right? It's Monday morning. You could have stayed in bed. You're here. So, I'm preaching to the converted, the people who want to do well in the assignment. Okay? people who aren't here who are in bed will write an essay with no secondary sources and they will fail the assignment. They should have gotten out of bed. Um, you have to engage with the primary and the secondary material. So if we're writing an essay on Joyce, we need to go back and forward through that text or through that story and we need to illustrate every time we say something about what Joyce is intending to do we illustrate it here's how he does it here's when he does it and then we also have to support that with here's the secondary reading around that here's the critical information that supports my point or that disagrees with my point but if you're not engaging with, with the secondary sources, you're not engaging within the discipline to the level that you should be. So how do we do that? How do we incorporate that material? 
quotations add weight to the point or argument and in order to assist your reader to distinguish your thinking from someone else's, the formatting and incorporation of quotations is important. I know you know this because I know that you've been doing it with other lecturers. I know you've been looking at this in critical thinking. Um, in my experience, the only time students generally um, resort to plagiarism, that's the incorporation of other people's work without acknowledging it, is because they're lacking in time, they're doing it at the last minute. They're overwhelmed by panic and it's easier to copy something that somebody else has written because they're, they can't see the point themselves. They feel that they've left it too late and they're not going to be able to do it themselves. So generally, again, go back to this time management thing, it's so important in order to try to get that information, to, to get you to be your best self in the assignment. Um, ensure that your essay is a synthesis of quotes that add weight to your argument as opposed to using quotes to make an argument. And I would always advise students to avoid ending a paragraph on a quote. And the reason for that is that I'm interested in your critical, informed opinion. It's your essay, so I want to hear your thoughts rather than you simply cutting and pasting quotations into your assignment. There is um, a colleague of mine used to describe the Argos catalogue essay, which was when people did do a lot of work, but they simply cut and paste a selection of lovely quotations into their essay. So you open up the essay and you have this lovely, like the Argos catalogue, all these things that are lovely to look at, but are completely unrelated. So you need to ensure that the, when you use a quotation, you don't use it simply to make your point. You use it to either to substantiate your point or you use it to introduce a counter argument or like a springboard. Okay? We get onto a springboard in order to jump off it. And that's what the quotation should do. It should allow you to jump off that point and add to it. So it gives you energy. It gives you a bounce into your own point. Yeah? So if you find that you've included a quotation and you've put a full stop and you've moved on to your next point, that should be a signal that something isn't quite right because you haven't used the quotation in the right way. You've simply adopted the Argos catalogue approach of here is my lovely quotation. Okay? Does that make sense? A few nods. Yeah. Okay. When you make reference to an author, um, you can just use their first name and refer to them, or your, you can, sorry, introduce, you should make reference to the author using their surname. So we don't call James Joyce James, we call him Joyce. We also use, when we make reference to secondary sources, we use surnames, so there's no need to put Professor X or Y, we just use their surnames. And that's maybe obvious to everyone, but for some people, they don't know how to make, to incorporate those references. This is a small thing. When citing within the text, there's no need to give the first and second name of the person you're quoting. So your 
your in-text, your citation, your in-text reference should look like that. You have your author's surname, the year of the work that you're using, the year that it was published, and the specific page reference. I beg of you all to use specific page references when you're using a direct quote. You must think of the reference as the address, the postal address of the section of text that you're using. So if you use a specific quotation, and I think that's excellent, I want to go and read exactly where that author says that, I need to be able to go to that book and open to the page and read it. Because if it's a 500 word book, I'm not going to be able to find the reference. And the point of the citation is that I can find the reference really quickly, like that. So I implore of you to use your page, your specific page numbers. Typically, you should aim to incorporate only short and relevant material from either the primary or the secondary source. Keep it short and sweet and get to the point, essentially. When including short quotations, there's no need to proceed them with a semicolon. You can just integrate them within your sentence as follows. And as I've said already, the next and vital task is to make a comment as to the significance of the quotation that you've used in relation to your thesis. So just on the screen here, you can see the way a shorter quotation might be integrated into a piece of text, your own piece of text. So you can see here in this, la in this sentence here, I have the author, I have referred to the author by his surname in this sentence, which means I don't need to make reference to that author's surname again in the citation which follows. So, and if you're unsure, have a look at the secondary material that you're using yourself and how has the author done that, done, incorporated those quotations and references because they will be there. And your job is also to remember that we're using the Harvard system of referencing. There's lots of different referencing styles. We're using Harvard. Um, Cite it right, I know, is available to you online. So you can have a look at that and double check how to mechanically get those references looking as they should. So quotations over 30 words, we ask that you indent, that you separate these from the main body of your text and you indent them on either side in a fully justified um, text. So you can see here the way this quotation is working. You've got a, a sorry, you've got a lead-in sentence introducing the quotation, you've got the quotation itself, you've got the citation at the end of that, and then, and this is the, the really important part, you've got the discussion of that quotation which follows immediately afterwards. So that's really essential, that idea of the discussion. So in terms of incorporating references, you've got a lead-in, you've got a quotation, you've got a citation, and you've got a discussion. So as you look at your own assignment, are you doing all those things when you're, in when you're using secondary material or primary material? Again, this is just to provide you with a checklist. 
when you come across a quote that you, um, a quotation that somebody else has used and you would like to use it, the appropriate thing is to make reference that you're using a quotation from a quotation. It just acknowledges that you have not read the original. So you simply would say, um, Godlier, Godlier in Hamill or whatever the two authors are. It's just, to, it's just to be clear what you have read and what you haven't read. You should work to ref make ref reference to an author's work in the present. So Joyce explains or Joyce presents, despite the fact that Joyce is dead and this was written many years ago, we still refer to an author's work in the present. So we refer to the primary text and the secondary work as in the present moment because it exists in the present. Yeah? <coughs> when referring to articles rather than writing somebody talks or speaks or feels or thinks, you can use more appropriate, precise and descriptive adjectives, suggests, considers, examines, outlines, summarizes or whatever the writer is actually doing. So it's your job. In that one word, you have revealed that you are aware of what the writer is doing. And they're not ever talking. So I have a slide in the presentation here around which just lists words that are useful in terms of introducing an author's argument. I've got a list of words that are less useful, so make reference to those to that um, presentation. So we've talked about the introduction and what it should do. We've talked about the main body of the essay, which is essentially composed of paragraphs, each making one point. Your conclusion has a specific job to do also. It draws together your various points and it consolidates your argument. Previously, you might have, it might have been suggested that to you that a conclusion summarizes your points. And I would suggest to you that a conclusion's, the role of the conclusion is more subtle and sophisticated than that. It draws together those points so as to consolidate them. A conclusion should never merely repeat the things that you have already said. It's this really important moment when the whole argument is held in the paragraph and comes together. It's that persuasive, punctuating moment to bring the reader around to your point of view. So, you've done your introduction, you've done your main body, you've done the conclusion, you've read, you've incorporated your quotations, you've thought about your thesis statement, you've done all of that, and essentially the next job is to go back and start again, but this time to, to test it, to begin to pull it apart a bit and see do all the threads stay as they are, or will some of them come loose? Is it all relevant? Is it meeting the thesis 
Is it all coming together? Then there's all the stupid things that I call them, which are the spellings, the grammar, the presentation. Stupid things, but really important stupid things, because they illustrate that's the measure of you, actually. That's when... And they're the things that we see first, almost. And they're the things that determine how hard you've worked. So before you start, if you haven't got yourself together, if it doesn't look like an essay, if it doesn't look like a duck or walk like a duck, it's not a duck. So it needs to look like a duck and walk like a duck, which means that it needs to be presented with that strict attention to detail. So I find the best way to prove anything is on paper and reading it out loud. I don't care how stupid and mad you might appear to your housemates. But this thing of talking to yourself in your bedroom, <laughs> you need to start cultivating that as an activity. <laughs> because it's only when you do that that you will read the mistakes and you'll hear them and you'll correct them. So you need to start doing that. Talking to yourself in your bedroom, out loud. People can hear you. They know nobody's in there except you. But I promise you, I promise you, if you do this, it's going to make a difference to your mark. So it just depends how much you want your mark. It's all down to you at the end. So... Um, a small few little points to note. You'll need to download the cover sheet from Moodle. You'll need to download and sign an anti-plagiarism form, also available on Moodle. You'll need to include an end-of-text reference list styled within the Harvard Conventions. So, you know, that's the apparatus that you need to put in place around the assignment when you've done it. I'm just trying to think now. In terms of the turn it in, you know, you know about the assignment needs to be handed. It needs to be submitted via turn it in, and submitted in hard copy. And I think Krista has sent an email around that because the submission day is English Day, which is there's a creative writing workshop. So there'll be more details on Moodle around that. Um, our time together this morning has come to an end. But I have got a bonus track on the presentation called Common Bloomers. And <laughs> uh, it's just a list of things that... Hold on, just give me one minute. It's just a list of things um, that you might find useful as a checklist. So it's there for you if you want it. Good luck with the assignment and thank you.